Proverbs chapter number 20, and Lord willing, Lord willing, we're going to wrap up this chapter tonight. We're down through verse 24, so we pick up in verse number 25 tonight. Proverbs chapter 20, and verse number 25, and I'm going to have to get it in high gear in a couple of these verses because they're the kind that if I'm not careful, I can really get stuck on, and I don't want to do that. Verse 25 says, It is a snare to the man who devoureth that which is holy, and after vows to make inquiry. Now, the word holy, as I'm sure most of you know, has to do with something that is set apart. You sanctify something or something, you know, that has been sanctified, we call it holy. It is set apart. For example, we think about the furniture in the tabernacle and the temple and uh, all of those articles of furniture, that was holy. It was not to be used for anything else. Those articles of furniture belong to God. Whenever we think about God's people, and the Bible refers to us as saints, and you think about the saints, and that's a word that implies that we have been set apart for God. And so notice he's speaking about that which is holy, that which is to be set apart for God. And, and he says it is a snare to the man that devours that. In other words, we have no right to take what belongs to God and use it as we please. Holy things are set apart. They're reserved for the Lord. And uh, an example of that's found back in chapter number 3, verse number 9, where he said, Honor the Lord with thy substance and with the firstfruits of all thine increase. Now think about that. The first fruits of all of thine increase. That, that part of our income, that first part belongs to God. So the 10% comes off the top. It doesn't come off of whatever happens to be left after you pay Sears and Roebuck and Monkey Warden, you know, and you pay all of them and you got a few dollars left and you put that in the offering plate. No, listen, the first fruits has to do with the first part of our income, our increase, whatever it is, that belongs to God. And for Israel, that was a real problem because human nature, you see, has never changed. People back then, they did exactly what people are still doing today. We have a tendency whenever we think that we need something, we we feel like, well, you know, God can do without it. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and he can do without it, so I'm going to use it to meet my needs. Israel had that kind of an attitude, and in the book of Malachi, he really takes them to task over that. God demands the first fruits, but God demands the very best, and they were giving God the leftovers. You know, whatever, whatever, whenever it come to the sacrifices and, and they had a lamb out there that maybe had been injured or it was sick and they thought, well, it's going to die anyway and it's not fit to enter in for a blue ribbon at the county fair. So, and I'm being facetious, of course, but, uh, it's no good to me is the point. It's no good to me. I, I, I we'll just kill that. We'll make that the sacrifice to God. And the Lord refused to accept any of what they did. It was all for naught. It was all in vain. He said, look, if you're not going to give me the very best, he said, I'm not going to accept any of it. Well, whenever we come to the New Testament, we see again another expression of human nature in the story of Ananias and Sapphira there in Acts chapter number 5. 
I love to study about the early church and the amazing things that God did. You know, we, we talk about the book of Acts and we speak of it as the Acts of the Apostles. In reality, it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit. It's what the Spirit of God did through the people of God. And it was amazing what was going on in that early church. And then, of course, up jumped the devil. And uh, you'll remember a lot of the people had property and in order to, in order to take care of their people, they were selling their property and giving it to the church and then distribution was made to the members so nobody had to go without. Well, Ananias and Sapphira, they thought, you know, they'd do their part and so, uh, they had some property in Cyprus, and so they decided they would sell that and and give the proceeds to the Lord. Well, you know, I don't know exactly what happened. The Bible doesn't tell us, but for some reason or another, they held back a part of that which they had received for the property. In other words, if they received $100, why, they gave God only $50 of it and kept back some. Might have been one of those emergency deals that I've got to have a little extra money this week. doesn't make any difference why they did what they did. It's the fact that they made a promise to God. Now keep this in mind. This is not something that God had demanded of them. God did not say, I command you to sell your property, bring it to the church and give it to the church and let the church distribute it as they see fit. He didn't command them to do that. This is something that they said they wanted to do. And so they made a promise to God, this is what we're going to do. And the Lord, the Lord very clearly showed his displeasure in the fact that they were struck dead as a result of that. His judgment fell upon them simply because they lied to God. Now, notice the notice the last part of this verse here. He says, uh, we shouldn't devour that which is holy. But then notice he says, and after vows to make inquiry. I think the point is here that after you've made a promise is not the time to start asking questions. You know, we promise God we're going to do this or that, and then we start asking questions, uh, you know, well, I promise I'll do this or that, Lord. But, but you know, I, I'd kind of forgotten about something, and uh, would it be okay, you know, if I, if I skip this month or that month or whatever? It's not the time to ask questions. When we make, we need to think about all that stuff ahead of time. When we make a promise to God, we better keep it. Now listen, these people had been warned. Turn your Bibles back to Deuteronomy chapter 23. Deuteronomy chapter 23. And there are several other verses that we could read. But this is a section here that I, I want to read it in the context of Israel and what God had told them. Because now here is Solomon giving instructions to these same people that had been well informed Verse 21, when thou shalt vow a vow unto the Lord thy God, thou shalt not slack to pay it. For the Lord thy God will surely require it of thee, and it would be sin in thee. But if thou shalt forbear to vow, it shall be no sin in thee. That is, if you don't make the promise. You know, if you don't make the promise and you don't do it, everything's fine. But when you make the promise, that's something else. Verse 23, 
That which is gone out of the lips thou shalt keep and perform, even a free will offering according as thou hast vowed unto the Lord thy God, which thou hast promised with thy mouth. And I can't tell you the number of times over the years that I've had people come to me, church members come to me, and uh, talk about difficulties they were going through and so forth, and, uh, and and the fact that they were in a bind and they're explaining their situation. We didn't anticipate college was going to cost Junior this much and so forth, and you know, or we, you know, we didn't anticipate that uh, one of the family members is going to be sick, and uh, we're we're not going to be able to give for a while. Boy, let me tell you, you're in dangerous territory when you take what belongs to God. You're playing with fire when you do that. And God's not playing games. It belongs to Him, and we have no right to take it. And secondly, we certainly don't have any right to lie about it by not performing the vows that we make. Verse number 26, A wise king scattereth the wicked and bringeth the wheel over them. Now this is another way of saying that a wise king separates the good from the bad. That, that's an important principle. He's, he's telling us that he deals firmly with evil. Now, some folks take this word wheel here to mean that the, the evil ones are made to work at the, at the threshing wheel, and, and that might be. And, and others claim that it's just symbolic of their destruction, just run them over with the chariots or, you know, whatever, uh, destroy them in some way. Uh, but the point is the same regardless of how you interpret that. And the point is that a wise king is not going to tolerate that which corrupts and ultimately destroys his kingdom. Now, I want you to think about that for a little while. We don't have a king in America. We got some folks that like to be kings and queens. We got folks, you know, that like to rule with an iron fist, but we don't have that kind of system, but the principle is the same. Whenever we entertain in our government, when our society allows that which is a detriment to our welfare, it's only a matter of time until we're destroyed. A wise king's not going to tolerate Something like that. It says he scattereth the wicked. I, he, another way of saying he, he, he gets rid of them because ultimately they're going to destroy the kingdom. Now there's a principle in this not only for a nation and we think about our nation and, 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 and by the way, if you, if you go back and you read the Federalist Papers and you read, uh, you know, uh, anything about the history of America and just uh, just the quotes from our forefathers. And it is absolutely amazing and mind-boggling what we see going on in our government today as we are making shambles out of the principles upon which our nation was built. And ultimately, ultimately, that is going to be our destruction. We're going to be destroyed from within not from without. We are our own worst enemy. So there's this principle that applies to our nation. You can apply this principle certainly to 
to us in our individual lives and the danger of entertaining sin in our life. But most certainly whenever we think about it in the context of a church, a lot of people misunderstand what church discipline is all about. Uh, but the, the, the fact of the matter is the welfare of the church depends on the church's willingness to discipline those that are, I'll use the word the Bible uses in one place, those that are unruly. And in other words, those that are going to create dissension in the church, those that are going to bring false doctrine in the church, those that bring shame and reproach upon the church because of their sinful behavior. And it's, it's not a matter of the church trying to punish its members. That's not the point. The point is, and Paul speaks about the evil in the church by using the word leaven. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. It affects the entire body. If it's not removed, ultimately it's going to destroy the body. If you you have a, a cancer growing in your body and the doctor says, look, there's only one way for you to survive and I'm going to have to... I'm going to have to put you under and take a knife and I'm going to have to cut you open. I'm going to have to cut that thing out of there. I say go for it, don't you? I mean, you get it out of there. If it's going to keep growing, if it's going to keep, uh, you know, dragging me down and ultimately killing me, it's got to go. And so we need to think about as a church that we have an obligation to, to do as a wise king would do in protecting his kingdom, that we do what we can to protect and preserve the integrity of the Lord's church. Now, verse 27, the spirit of man is the candle of the Lord, searching all the inward parts of the belly. Have you ever thought what it, what, what it is that sets man apart from the beast of the field? What makes us different than just, you know, the animals out there? You know, I I think just about everybody loves dogs, you know. Uh, and and if you've been around dogs very much and if you if you have a dog, you you can just look in that dog's eyes and and tell whether it's angry, whether it's happy, whether it's sad. Uh, just some, something there that you're able to read the way that dog is feeling. But listen, believe me, that's about the limit to it because that dog can't reason like you do. That dog doesn't, it acts on instinct. It doesn't think things through like we do. What makes us different than the other creatures? The Bible tells us in Genesis 1 and verse 27, says, God created man in his own image. The very next chapter, verse 7, says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Now, here's what I want you to notice. The Hebrew word that is translated breath is exactly the same word that is translated spirit. Now, remember, notice he just got through saying God created man in his own image, right? Isn't that what he said? Man became a living, a living soul by his breath, God's breath. But how do you describe God? Well, we can look at the attributes of God and talk, no, no, no. But that's what God does. That's not what God is. What is God? Well, the Bible says God is what? Spirit. 
God is a spirit. We were created in the likeness of God. Man has a spirit that sets us apart from the beast of the field. That makes us different from any other part of God's creation. Man is, is a trinity. Man is made up of body and soul and spirit. My body is the seat of world consciousness. And as you've heard me say many times before, through the five senses of my body, I'm able to identify this. It's cold. feels like metal. And I'm able to look at it, and I'm able to confirm what I feel. And I hear things. So my seat of world consciousness has to do with my body. But I'm more than a body. I am a soul. Now, the soul is the seat of self-consciousness. That is where my mind, my will, and my emotions are. My mind, my will, and my emotions. That's the seat of self-consciousness. But I'm more than body and soul. I'm also spirit. And the spirit is the highest part of man, and that is the seat of God-consciousness. That's why regardless of where you go in all of the world, it might be people dancing naked around a totem pole somewhere. It might be in some other part of the world. It makes no difference where you go. Everywhere you go, you're going to find people worshiping something, whether they refer to that something as God, a a, a, a higher being, or, or whatever it is. But, but all people everywhere have some sense of a higher power. Why is that? It's because that man is body, soul, and spirit. That's exactly why it is. there's some, some part of man that's not in any other animal on the face of the earth that sets him apart. That's the seed of God consciousness. He, God has endowed us with certain faculties of, of perception, memory, imagination, and reason, and things like that. Elihu in the book of Job said, but there is a spirit in man and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. Somebody referred to the conscience as, said the conscience is God in man. Well, you know, I don't know how to, how to describe it really. I, 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 I really, I really don't. But I know that our conscience gives us a measure of light. I know that it enables us to discern to an extent between right and wrong. And it either approves something or it condemns something. It either produces peace or it produces pain. But the conscience is not infallible. And I say that because we are in a fallen state. We have been affected by the fall. And consequently, as a result of that, we cannot depend entirely upon our conscience. Uh, and it's really amazing, you know, most of us, you know, we will ignore our conscience whenever it condemns us, but then we don't seem to... We don't seem to think much about it when it affirms what we feel, you know. We'll go with that. But when it gets crossways with what we want to do, a lot of times that we just ignore it. And let me tell you, that does several things that I don't have time to talk about. 
it, it, rebellion weakens our conscience for one thing. It becomes easier and easier and easier. Amen. You see, just, just you know, all that used to bother me doesn't bother me anymore. And, and so it weakens our conscience. It impairs our reasoning. It distorts our judgment. It leaves us confused. The, the wonderful thing about it is when Christ saves us, he indwells us and he gives us a new light. You know, so many times whenever we're talking about being lost, and what do we mean by that? Well, uh, the best way I know how to describe it is that our spirit is separated from God's spirit. There is a disconnect there. But the minute that God saves us, we are quickened. That, that is made alive because the spirit of God quickens our spirit. And now, now I have a new nature. Are you all still with me now? I mean, here we are in our unsafe state. We are without God. You know, we we ignore what our God-given conscience tells us. We do things our way. We end up, you know, getting in trouble, living in misery. But the moment the Lord saves us, all of a sudden, everything begins to change as a result of that because He's living within us and guiding us and directing us. And and now it, it is crucial that because of the fact that the Spirit of God is doing His work in our hearts, it's crucial that we listen to our conscience. And you be careful about this. I, I'm not talking about little voices in your head or something like that. I'm talking about listening to your God-giving conscience in the light of the Word of God. And as you do that, you'll be you'll become more and more sensitive towards sin. In fact, the Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that a sensitive conscience is a mark of spiritual maturity. And that, this is that verse I said I'm going to have a lot of trouble getting through because let me tell you, th- this could take hours to just stop and read all of these verses. But so many times, and I've seen it happen, that people will criticize, one Christian will criticize another Christian and talk about them, and usually they put a label on them. They're just legalists. Yeah, that is legalists because, you know, they are so strict in their doctrine and the way they think people ought to behave. You ever stop and think it might be they're more spiritually mature than you are? And they see the evil in something that you don't see the evil of. And that's why they don't want anything to do with it. They are spiritually mature enough to recognize that it's not right. And you haven't grown that much yet. And this is one reason that Paul, whenever he was warning young Timothy, the preacher, he's warning him about the importance of having a clear conscience. In fact, the way he words it, it's as though he's saying, Timothy, above everything else, you better make sure you have a clear conscience. Because so much depends upon it. A guilty conscience. Let me mention four things, and I'll get on to the next verse. Four things about a guilty conscience and how it affects us. Number one, it robs us of peace. I've often said the most miserable people on earth are not, it's not the drunks out there in the bars. They don't have enough sense to be, you know, to, to, to feel bad about that, you know, uh, you know, not to the extent that a backslidden Christian does. 
But when a child of God is out of the will of God and the Spirit of God is convicting them of their sin, they're miserable. And whenever you have a guilty conscience about something, uh, boy, it's going. if you're a Christian, it's going to make you miserable. Kind of like the fellow, you know, that years ago it was said that he sent a telegram to 12 real famous people and the telegram said, fly at once, all is discovered. And within a matter of hours, all 12 of them had left the country. A guilty conscience will mess up your day. Secondly, secondly, it'll affect your health. If you don't believe that, when you get home, read Psalms 32, at least the first four verses of that psalm. And there David is speaking about the effect that sin had on his life. And so it'll affect your health. So, so many times, you know, we attribute to, you know, to our, our poor health to something that you know, we got this bug or that bug or whatever. I'm really convinced when we get to heaven and we see the big picture, we're going to discover that our spiritual attitude has a whole lot more to do with our physical health than what we ever imagined. Amen. I really believe that. Thirdly, it hinders our boldness in witnessing. Psalms 51, and if you think about David, he's making confession of his sin. What did he say? Restore to me the joy of thy salvation. And then what are you going to do, David? Then I'll teach transgressors. You haven't been doing that, David? No, he hadn't been doing that. Why? He had a guilty conscience. He'd committed adultery. He'd committed murder. He hadn't been talking about the Lord to anybody. He hadn't been teaching anyone. But as soon as he got his heart right with God, all of a sudden he said, Lord, you restore unto me the joy of, of thy salvation. He said, then I'll, I'll get back involved in teaching other people. Let me tell you, as a, as a preacher, there is absolutely nothing in the world that will cause a preacher to freeze up and lose his freedom any quicker than a guilty conscience. I mean, it will, it, it'll, it'll, it's a train wreck for a preacher, but it'll hinder anyone from witnessing. When you know you've not been living for the Lord, it might be a co-worker, a classmate, it might be a relative or a friend, and, and, and you've been around them, you know, they know how you've been living. Now you try to tell them about Jesus. You try to tell them about how much they need the Lord. And your guilty conscience will shut your mouth. It'll keep you from doing what you should. And then it'll cause us to drag our feet. It really will. I, I, there in John, and I think about the Lord, and, and uh, I think about Peter and Peter's guilt and so forth. You do remember he was the last one to the tomb. He's first one in, but he's the last one. He's you know he run in ahead of the others. But he, if I remember right, but he was the last one to get there. Help me out. Am I? That's right, wasn't it? I think. They for him. Yeah. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. He was the last one. Yeah, yeah that that got there. I wonder why. Well, he just denied the Lord three times. You see. And so it'll cause you to drag your feet. I, I've got, to, I've got to get on. Verse 28. 
Verse 28, mercy and truth preserve the king, and his throne is upholden by mercy. Boy, I, I would to God all of the leaders of our land would read this verse and take it to heart. Mercy and truth preserve the king. We hear, you know, a lot about national security. And uh, that's something I think that we ought to be concerned about, don't you? But the fact of the matter is most of our leaders are totally ignorant as to what is really most important when it comes to national security. You know, we think by spending billions of dollars building up our armed forces and so forth and through our military might and what have you that we can we can preserve ourselves. The fact of the matter is there's absolutely nothing in all of the world that's going to help us whenever we turn away from the truth. When we cease living according to the principles of this blessed old book right here, we are doomed. I wish I had time to share with you several of the quotes from our forefathers that I've copied down in my Bible in different places. And they tried to warn us of this. And I think about the... Uh, I forgot his name, the Frenchman that came over here and spent so much time. And uh, and uh, whenever he went back and he told everybody he had discovered what made America great, and he said, I didn't understand what made America great, you know, until I went to its churches. And I went to the churches in America. And he said, America is great because America is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, it'll cease to be great. Boy, I tell you, he, he hit the nail on the head, didn't he? And this is what he's talking about here, mercy and truth preserving the kingdom. Verse 29, the glory of young men is their strength, and the beauty of old men is the gray head. <laughs> uh, each has an asset that the other one doesn't have. One has strength, and one has experience. And, and, and I often, in, you know, in throwing a few words out to our young people, we'll tell them, look, do what, you, you better do what you can do while you can do it. I mean, while you're young, while you're strong, you've got all of that energy. You know, I, Bev and I was talking the other day about, about years gone by and the schedule that we kept and the things that we, I, 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 honestly, I don't, I don't know how we did it. Uh, and as I've said before, I stopped one day and I was just wondering, uh, why am I so tired? And so I got my record book out, went back over the last three years at that time, and I'd averaged preaching three times a day, three years straight in a row. That's an average, three times a day. I was teaching in Bible college. I was having a daily radio broadcast. I was teaching at a preacher's school on Monday nights at all of our services. I'd usually come in on Monday you know, or, or uh, come in on Saturday night, be there for Sunday, load up, leave out on Monday, be gone in a conference or a revival meeting and poor Bev at home with all of those kids and trying to hold down the fort there plus her work in the church. And I, I think, how, how did we do that? I'll I, I tell you how we did it. We were younger then. We could do a lot of stuff back then that we can't do now. I remember one day and I, 
and I was a, lot, a whole lot younger than I am now, but I was preaching, I got to bragging about something, and I, and, uh, I said, yeah, I can do more push-ups than anybody in this building right now, you know, and I thought I could. We, we had some kid come up after the service about 18 years old, and 17, 18, he said, preacher, I don't think you can do more push-ups than I can. Well, I, and I couldn't. <laughs> so I didn't brag anymore about that. You know, you, 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 be, you better be careful because you finally reach a point in time where you can't do what you used to do. But, and, and, and listen, and, I, I'm, and I, I've just got to tell you, I'm, Bev and I both are going through this battle. I, you don't know how beat up I felt Sunday night because I wasn't here. I, I felt, I not only felt bad physically, I felt horrible because I wasn't here, uh, and so forth, but, uh, so we're both, we both have a tough time dealing with this, what I'm trying to say, because, you know, we, we want to do as much as we can, and yet we can't. And you've got to remember that this is all a part of God's plan in my life and in your life. It is. You've got assets today that young people don't have. You've got all of these years of experience as an older person. And, and the point I'm trying to make is we, we each need to see the value of the other person's assets. We think about the youth and all of their energy. Uh, that's why we get them out there here in these nursing homes and stuff like that. Let them burn it off out there serving the Lord, doing something to help those people, you see. They need to use that strength doing something. But those of you that are older, there are other ways that God can use you. So don't you dare sit down on the stool of do nothing and whittle on the stick of do less, feeling sorry for yourself because you're older. Stop that. Because God has a purpose for you or you wouldn't be here. He'd already moved you on home. Well, verse 30, and we're going to wrap this up. The blueness of a wound cleanseth away evil. So do stripes the inward parts of the belly. Now, this is really funny because before the service, I happened to overhear a conversation out here about spanking. I won't tell you who it was, but they were talking about getting spankings whenever they were a kid. You know, I've heard people say, and uh, they're trying to justify their laziness probably, but they say, you know, it just doesn't do any good to spank my kid. It just doesn't do any good. Well, if you do it right, it does. Amen. You do it right, it does. I'll never forget giving Jason the spanking, and he had on a pair of short britches, and he had some stripes in the, on his legs. And he said, Daddy said, the, the, the gym teacher's going to see those tomorrow, and he's going to want to know what happened, and you're going to be in trouble. He was a bald and squalling. I, I said, if, if he does, you tell him come and see me, and I'll explain to him exactly what happened. You disrespected your mother. I took my belt off, and I spanked you. That's what happened. You do it again, I'll do it again. Now, look. I realize that all kids are different. They really are. You you can't necessarily deal with every kid in the same way. And I'm not saying 
that you ought to spank your child every time they do something wrong. But there's got to be a place and a time where you do what the Bible says, and that is you spank them whenever they need it. And it ought to be a spanking they'll remember. This little stuff like that, that doesn't do anybody any good whatsoever. Here's the point I want to make and leave you with. Whether you see the result of it or not, look, this is what God told us as parents to do, to spank our kids. And God is going to honor our obedience. If we don't do it, then we're disobedient to God. Am I right? If we don't do what God tells us to do, we're disobedient to God. Now, if we do what God tells us to do, then in some ways, sooner or later, it's going to pay off. God's going to honor your obedience. That's the point I'm trying to make. And, 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 of course, I don't need to tell you one of the major problems we face in America today is uh, is a lack of discipline, my land to live in. We wonder why our prisons are overflowing. We can't build them fast enough. And, and the reason goes right back to the home, and those children never learn to respect authority. And so then they get out here and they see something they want and they rob a rob a store or shoot somebody and uh, just to get something they want and end up in prison. And, and a lot of times I think mom and dad ought to be there right along with them because it's their fault many times that uh, the kid does what they do. Well, that's it. We've finished that chapter. Thank you for being with us on this journey and the Lord willing, we'll pick up in chapter 21 and, and uh, see where it takes us. All right, let's all stand. I guess Tim has left the building. Elvis has left. No, <laughs> I was going to have him lead us in a song about it. Let's sing that little chorus. Uh, I, I love him. All right. I love him. I love him. Because he first loved me and purchased my salvation on Calvary's tree. Aren't you glad that he loved you? That he loves us. And he loved us first. Yes. And that's why we love him. Brother Carl, will you lead us in prayer, please? Precious and kind Heavenly Father, we give thanks tonight that you are just that. And we thank you and ask you to bless those of our number that are sick or hurt. Lord, it seems like that the list is growing. If you would tend to that, we would greatly appreciate it. We pray for those that are on the road traveling, that they would have traveling mercies. Give us traveling mercies as we go home to our homes. Take this message that we've heard tonight and apply it to our lives. Keep us close. Forgive us of our sins and shortcomings. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.